Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. Oh, man. I almost went AM DJ on you there. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, but thanks for joining us for the Otherwise podcast. Uh, this podcast is all about gathering conversations from others on how to live well throughout the journey with Jesus. And today is no exception. Uh, we have a friend of mine today named Mandy Smith. Uh, Mandy is a senior pastor of University Christian Church in Cincinnati, or Cincinnati, depending on where you come from. She's also an author. Uh, one of her books called The Vulnerable Pastor is something we're going to talk about. She also writes for a blog called Missio Alliance that I think you're really going to enjoy. And, and the conversation we get into today uh, has a lot to do with gender and the church. And I think this is an incredibly healthy and helpful discussion that we need to begin having more often as a pastor myself, uh, being involved in these conversations, as well as having them with other people. I think it's critical that we start having conversations about what does it look like to lead in the kingdom of God with multiple uh, genders being at the table. And Mandy has led that. She's been kind of radical. We'll talk about that a little bit. It's not that she's um, radical in the sense of crazy, but she has been given some amazing opportunities and has made the most of those. So I know you're going to enjoy this episode. And as you listen, I just would love for you to consider reviewing this podcast, uh, leaving us a review on iTunes. And here we go, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, Mandy Smith. Mandy, it's so good to have you on. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, I like starting here since we're talking about wisdom. Uh, if you were to define wisdom, if you were to go at it and give it a go, uh, where would you begin? Where does that start for you? Mm. I think it has a lot to do with being able to live out the things that we know so we can know an idea or know a principle but um, to actually be able to put it into practice for it to become a part of who we are um, is what wisdom is for me, which is really a whole person experience. It's, it involves our senses and our bodies and our minds and our spirits and not just our minds. So with that being said, what, is there something that makes uh, wisdom for you distinctly Christian or as a, as a pastor and as a church leader and as someone who writes and speaks on uh, a Christian faith, a Christian life. Is there something that makes wisdom distinctly Christian for you? Hmm, interesting. Um, I guess from the perspective, you know, that we believe God is the source of all wisdom and God endows us with wisdom, um, that as we are seeking him, we are also seeking, as we're seeking that wisdom, we are seeking him and vice versa. As we're seeking him, we are finding wisdom. So, um, in some ways they're inseparable. Yeah. I don't know about you, but f I think for a lot of people, wisdom has something to do with, uh, where they came from. Like a lot of my wisdom, I grew up in the Southern part of the United States. And so I've got all this, all these sayings and uh, folk mm. wisdoms that come from grandparents and parents, mm. uh, for you, Obviously, if people listening are like, well, I don't think she grew up in the States. Exactly. <laughs> I'm from the way south, some people say. <laughs> uh, talk about that. How, how does your story 
mm. growing up and contributing? What does that What does that story look like, and how does that feed into this feeling about wisdom that you have? Yeah, I think probably any wisdom that I have has grown from change and from contrasting different experiences. So I left Australia when I was eighteen and um, have also lived in England. So being an outsider really makes you self-aware and really shows you those things that you didn't, you just didn't even think about because everybody did them. And suddenly you're the only person who's doing them and you realize, Oh, this, uh, it's not transparent anymore. You know? And so I think a lot of my wisdom has come from, from having to be an outsider and having to adapt to a new context. And then um, there's several other ways in which I feel out of place in the the place that I find myself. And so um, probably having to speak different languages, even though all of the places I've lived are English speaking, there's a way I have to, I have to speak different languages and, and come to know myself that I think probably is, is where some of that wisdom has come from. Did you have to learn that the hard way? Yes. <laughs> and I think because I was still forming who I am at the time, I was only 18 when I left. And so to be going through that when you're still trying to figure out who you are is a very strange thing. My, my has, my um, tendency was actually to over adapt and um, to give away everything that made me different. Cause I wanted to just fit in as an 18 year old. And so what I then had to learn how to do was to bring who I truly am and trust that people will embrace that and welcome that. And so, yeah, it's, it's a big it's, it was a big adjustment, I think. So you left Australia at 18, and did you go straight to London from there? No, I came here to Ohio first. My husband and I studied here and then went to Sheffield in England, actually, where he, he did his PhD and then came back here. So, um, yeah, I've been around the place a little bit. And so talk about how you – so I prepped the listeners a little bit, but uh, the Christian tradition that – uh, stream of the Christian faith that you're part of, the movement that you're a part of, that your church is a part of, is traditionally a, a movement that doesn't have a lot of female senior pastors. And I, mm. I'm being very generous with a lot of. Um, how, <laughs> any. any would be better. How, do you, how did you get, when you came back from London to Ohio, how did you find your way into the position that you're in right now? Yeah. Um, well, I think God was very gracious because not only could others not see a woman in that role, I couldn't see myself in that role. And so I was able to work with um, a lead pastor who had a really great imagination, both for what leadership could be and for what I could be. And um, so I came on, first of all, as the associate pastor with him doing some fairly traditional female roles, you know, and, um, or roles that we've seen women do before. So I wasn't so bothered by that. And then, um, one Sunday, I just got a call at 10 PM one Saturday, 10 PM Saturday night, got a call saying, um, I'm stuck in the airport. I won't be preaching tomorrow. What should we do? And, um, I was like, well, I'm the associate pastor, so I guess I'll be preaching tomorrow morning. <laughs> so um, I kind of had opportunities like that to get thrown in in the deep end. And um, so, and then we co-led together for a time and I thought that was going to be an ongoing situation and more and more doors kept opening for him. And so before I knew it, I was um, in a position to be the lead pastor and it felt so perfectly natural and right, even though I never would have applied for that job. Um, because it was the church I'd been serving for five years. And 
um, had been given opportunities to, to try out some of those things I would have never imagined myself doing. So obviously the, the pastor you were serving with was on board with you stepping into that role. Did you mm-hmm. find your, did you find a culture in the church that was ready to receive you in that role or not? Yes, very much so. I think that was a huge blessing too, because I am not someone who wants to push myself in any way. And in a weird way, when women do, they almost um, disqualify themselves in some people's minds. So um, I've actually decided if people, um, if people genuinely want to know my thoughts on that or for me to explain my theology of all that, I'm happy to if they're genuinely seeking but if they are coming with an argumentative spirit, I can never, I can never win. <laughs> and so I actually kind of, I'm a bit tickled by this response that I've come up with because I just say, well, you'll just have to ask my husband about that. <laughs> um, who's the New Testament professor. So, <laughs> um, so, but to get back to your question. Um, yeah. So I really, I think the Lord knew also that if there was a sense that it was, and a huge issue, then I would, I would not have fought my way into that role. Um, and I think any pastor really doesn't want it to be about them. You know, we want to serve, we want to um, come alongside folks in our congregation. And if, the, if it then becomes about our identity or our personality, then um, it's just really hard to then step into a place of servanthood from that. From that. So I'm very thankful that even though the 6,000 churches that my church is kind of connected with don't have never had a female lead pastor. Mine was ready for it. They had had some, they'd already decided to have women on an eldership board and they had had female women on staff, female women, (laughs) female pastors on staff before um, who had preached once or twice. You know, it was a children's minister who had preached and a campus pastor who had preached, but that wasn't a regular part of their role. So there was some groundwork that was set for me to step into that because I'm not a person who likes controversy or conflict in any way. So I'm not, I wasn't seeking it. So it was a beautiful thing that they were very open and encouraging. Well, that's interesting because on the one hand, you say that about yourself and you're not interested, you're not, a, you're not interested in controversy or conflict, but at the same time, you're sort of, the door opens for you to be a trailblazing kind of person mm. and mm. to step into a role that no one else in the movement yeah. has stepped into and things like that. Yeah, it's a reluctant prophet kind of a situation. And then I think about so you have a daughter, correct? Yeah. So you have you have your daughter who you're raising and she gets to see this mm-hmm. you go into these spots. Do you think that creates any dissonance for her as far as what she sees happening to other uh, daughters or or other moms that she's friends with their daughters, and it, because mm. it's not a secret, we don't exactly live in a super female friendly culture in general. Right, right. How does that impact the way that yeah. you? Yeah, it's been that? interesting. She, she and I actually did an interview for Christianity Today, and it was so beautiful to sit down with her. She's nineteen now, and she's actually at Bible college, and thinking about kind of alternative forms of ministry and. Um, so I asked her in that interview about what that's been like for her. And it's funny because now that she's in Bible college, she is around more people where that's an issue. And it was, that was new for her that this was a big deal. You know, she knew in theory that this was not a normal thing, but because she'd grown up at my church, our church, 
um, she'd never really had any personal experience of feeling like somebody was telling her she couldn't do certain things or um, whatever. So um, it's very, it's very interesting for me. And it gives me a lot of hope that I've had an experience where, and I've heard this from many women where a man has come or a woman, someone who hasn't seen it before and said, in theory, I don't agree with women in leadership in the church, but when I see how you do it, I actually don't have any problem with it. And so um, I'm not on a mission to change people's minds, but I do get really sad because when we do have the conversations, we're often talking about women in leadership in a really um, uh, abstract way. And the places where we've seen some of women in leadership is in the world. And so we're bringing in any ideas we have about, uh, you know, there's a stereotype that a woman who's a leader has to be bossy or ambitious or um, self-driven or whatever, things that also don't look very Christ-like sometimes. And so we, without realizing it, we bring that model of women in leadership into our conversation about women in leadership in the church. And so I love to have more and more women who are just leading so that other people can have a conversation, even if they still disagree with it to actually see Christ like women leading as Jesus did. Um, and so it's beautiful for me to see that just in one generation between me having to fight so many, I don't think I was fighting battles, but feeling so oppressed and feeling such conflict between what I sense God calling me to and what I heard the church calling me to. Um, and then just in one generation, as soon as my daughter is seeing, models of that you know your imagination is expanded and um role models are incredibly powerful we, we only notice that when we don't have them and so several friends and i often joke about how we're our own role models that oftentimes for me i would be saying like can a woman do this and still be taken seriously i don't know let's find out okay i guess she can <laughs> you know um you know i'm i'm a teary kind of person but I know all the stereotypes that go with women who are criers. And the first time I, I was tearing up during a sermon, I was like, okay, can I cry while I preach? And will people run away? You know, can people handle this? Wow. And it turns out they can. So, um, so she gets to see then a woman can cry when she preaches. <laughs> you know, she watches somebody else do it instead of having to be her own role model. And so, which is amazing um, because that blesses me. If do you feel like this the the flip is true if a if a man cries while he's preaching it it changes his his view or his persona in the eyes of people listening? I think in some churches it actually makes people feel like oh he's so strong but he's also so sensitive and that's really lovely and Jesus was like people that like, and like King in, David yeah, so I think there's a model for that. I think we have a place in our minds for that. There is a lot of shame around um uh, emotion that, you know, there are some churches that are, that have this idea of masculinity that I know gets wrapped up in things that isn't always healthy. And so I think in some churches, that's a shameful thing for the male preacher to cry. Um, and that's a sad thing, <laughs> you know, that, that has all kinds of baggage associated with it. But, um, I think that we have so many caricatures, um, of women that I personally have, have had to navigate and realize that um, 
I actually saw all these postcards that came out around the time of the suffragette era and um, they were they were anti-suffragette postcards and one of them had a picture of a baby screaming and at the bottom it said mummy's a suffragette um, so this message of you know if if you want the vote then you're a bad mum and another one had a picture of um, kind of caricatures of women at a suffragette rally um, who all had kind of poppy eyes and buck teeth and saying you can hear a lot of plain things uh, at the bottom it said you can hear a lot of plain things at a suffragette rally and also see a lot and so kind of saying you know if you want the vote then you must be a very plain woman um, and then there was a third one where a woman was throwing herself at a man she was like this very shapely woman and his hat's flying off and he looks like he's like being assaulted by her and at the bottom it said vote getting this the easiest way or something like that so like if you want the vote you're a hussy basically so I mean, those kinds of tactics are not used as directly anymore, but I do think that we still have these caricatures in our mind of, of the woman who's childish or the woman who's manipulative or um, the woman who cries too much and is emotional or the woman who's not a good mother or the woman who's overly maternal and wants to, wants to mother everybody. Like there's so many of these un, unhelpful and two-dimensional caricatures that we have and I only just in the last year or two have realized how much I was kind of living a life shaped between avoiding all of those, yes. <laughs> which is not a life of freedom. No. And uh, so it's only in kind of stepping into that, like, can I be a three dimensional person who sometimes is emotional or sometimes needs to be assertive or sometimes needs to look a little bit like one of those caricatures without being entirely called that and set aside because once you call somebody you know the the manipulative woman or the emotional woman or the childish woman once you've named that you can dismiss her and that's the end of the conversation and so it's been really um it's been really good healing work that god has done in me to to help me be my whole self and trust that I won't be dismissed if I look a little bit like some of those things I've been trying not to look like I love that idea of three dimensional people because I, because to me, when I, when I hear that, it's, that seemed to me like a discipleship issue or a, mm. a formation issue. That's something that mm. is lacking where an awareness of our emotions an awareness of our need for assertiveness, our awareness of our, our need to be weak. One of my favorite quotes in uh, the book that you wrote of the vulnerable pastor is the one that says, you're talking about weakness and control. And I hear this in your response and I'd love for you to just kind of unpack this quote a little bit if you can, but it said, mm-hmm. said, there's plain old weakness, then there's plain old control. But there's a third thing that I've yet to know how to name. It's when we're, I'm aware of my smallness, but there's no shame in it. Mm. No grappling for more, but a peace in the immensity around me. Mm. What, what, tell me about that. How, where does that come from in you? How have I been learning that? Learning it or where, you know, where did that, what's the well that that water Mm. came out of? Yeah. Well, I think actually it did begin um, for me when I was confronted with some of these role models of leadership um, when I was just stepping into the lead pastor role. And 
you know, you want to step into a new role like that, feeling full and feeling so capable. And when I started looking at everybody around me who does that job, I didn't see anybody who looked like me or who did it like me. And um, that felt like this huge chasm, just this emptiness inside of me. And I told the Lord, I was actually at a huge leadership conference and I'd gone there with an open heart thinking, God's going to use this to equip me for this, this role he's calling me to. And he did equip me, but not in the way that I expected because I ended up after about a day or so of being at this conference, just feeling like I, I can't see myself here. I'm not, I mustn't be a Christian leader and going back to my hotel room and just locking myself in there for a whole day. And I think I threw up a couple of times and, um, and I told the Lord, I've got nothing. If you want, if I'm supposed to be this, I see absolutely nothing in myself that can be this. And you've made a mistake. And um, I wanted the Lord to tell me, oh, no, 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 look, you've got this and you've got that and look at all these gifts and look at all these talents and all this experience. And he didn't. He just said, in your weakness, I am strong. Mm-hmm. And um, there is no shame in his eyes. When we suddenly are confronted with our humanity, with our humanness, he's not, he's not surprised. <laughs> and, and he doesn't look on us with shame, but he sees potential in that. And I actually think that is the core of most of our sin is what we do in that moment of what we perceive to be a shameful moment of the, that realization of everything that we aren't, whether we feel stupid because we couldn't answer a question or we feel inadequate because we're feeling sick today or getting old, um, forgetful, um, not feeling up to the task, um, not being able to control ourselves like you know every experience of human limitation affect that affects our mind and our spirit and our body each single experience of that is an opportunity to be in relationship with the lord and each single experience of that also holds within it i think an opportunity to be a temptation to be ashamed and to flee him and to seek just anything that will fix the ache of that emptiness whether it's, you know, distracting ourselves from it, getting on Netflix or, you know, um, buying something to just fill the void, working harder in our own strength. You know, we do all these things to, to numb it and to overcome it. And um, we succumb to it through, through depression or anxiety or whatever, you know. And, and I think God is just sitting in that moment saying, no, don't be ashamed. <laughs> I knew you didn't have all the answers and I called you anyway, you know, and we see that in every story in the old Testament of calling. And, and Jeremiah's is one of my favorites. So many times people say, who am I? You know, when God calls them. And it reminds me of that moment I had in the hotel room. God doesn't come back and say, you're this and you're that and blah, blah, blah. You know, with Jeremiah, when God calls him, um, he says, I'm just a child. Why would you send me? And God says, I have called you. I have sent you. I will go with you. I will give you what you need to say. And um, he just draws, draws us out of ourselves, you know, and, and shows us that opportunity for relationship with him. And so I actually think this is the center of our entire relationship with God, that we're supposed to feel like human beings. We're supposed to feel small and he's supposed to be everything to us when we feel that way. And that's just this, walking hand in hand with him every day and knowing what is our part to bring and how we can trust him with all the rest. 
but that's not really a first world way. No. Wow. That whole idea of sin is what happens when we feel shame. I listen to, uh, and you probably do too, a host named Krista Tippett. Mm, I love her. And one of her quotes is that anger is pain made public. Mm. And it feels like that's what you're, it feels like that's what you're, you're walking around with what you're saying. And, and so that brings me to, uh, you write for Missio Alliance mm-hmm. as part of your ministry. You lead uh, a, a summit that they do, that they've started to do now called She Leads, which is mm. trying to bring together uh, male and female leaders for equal leadership in the church instead of dividing it up. But you definitely live in a place where you are challenging norms and uh, previous expectations and things like that and the things that you write and and the work that you're doing. So how do you balance? Because I think some of our people listening to this are probably uh, moms, housewives, working women doing what, you know, not that there's any other kind of women, but working women, whatever. (laughs) They have a job in the city. They ride a train. They're listening to this. They're, they're a single mom supporting a a family. They're, uh, they're married, whatever, but they're seeing what I think is coming out through things like what we're seeing with the me too movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're seeing some of these things and, and maybe everybody has known Mm. deep in their bones for a long time. And I, I, I feel like we're at a point where the, that whole culture of how we treat women in the United States needs to change. How do you challenge that without it becoming to where it stays in that place of understanding the smallness Mm. and understanding you don't need more than that. But yet at the same time, there's this calling to, and, and I don't, maybe I don't know if you would take this word to be true of you, but there's this sort of profit nature to Mm. it where you're speaking truth to a certain kind of power Mm -hmm. how how do you manage the humility of that smallness with the need to stand up and really press because i think that's one of the pushback against sometimes what you were talking about with the suffragette movement is you know some of the pushback is oh it's just shrill and it's just Mm -hmm. angry Mm -hmm. it's it's got an agenda as if nobody else does of course Um, yeah yeah how do you balance those two things yeah, and actually it's interesting to me just before I answer your question because out of a fear that I might sound like that for a long time I held my tongue and because I'm a little on the quiet side anyway, um, I didn't realize how much I was, I was afraid of doing the wrong thing by saying the wrong thing and there's also a way to do the wrong thing by not saying anything. Um, and I have a tendency to fall into that temptation and so oftentimes even the stuff that people are talking about in the Christian leadership world about not wanting attention or not seeking the limelight, um, that actually often kind of counter is counterproductive for people who really should be speaking out like women, you know, um, cause oftentimes I don't know many women who are trying to find, seek the limelight. They need a voice that instead says, come on, Jeremiah, I am calling you, you know? So, um, to answer your question, I have found so much hope and help in Walter Brueggemann's The Prophetic Imagination because he has, um, I see your face and I hear you. I think I sense you know what I'm talking about. So it's been beautiful because um, the, the way of a prophet is to lament what is broken but also to dance for what is possible. 
And I think until I had that language for it, I just felt like I was going crazy because that is my life. <laughs> and um, I see what could be. And I have, I have such a big imagination when I read scripture of what God is doing in the world or what he could be doing. And at the same time, there's this pain that comes from not seeing that in its fullness in the world around us. And um, so a few years ago, um, I sensed the Lord calling me to dance for the healing to come, which is a very strange thing to be called to do. And I was actually planning a healing service at the time for the first time, which is terrifying for me, not coming from any kind of culture that or tradition that does healings, that healing prayer. And um, so it began with, with sensing that um, he was asking me, if you um, really believe that these people you're going to pray for tomorrow will be healed, wouldn't you celebrate that? Like if you really believe it now that it could happen in the future, wouldn't you celebrate that now? And so it was a huge stretching of my heart. And I went to the church the night before and in the dark by myself, did the most awkward dance that you could ever imagine because <laughs> it was a dance of obedience to, to like stretch my heart to imagine that that could be possible. And so that then over several years, God kept using that metaphor and stretching it and stretching it um, to encompass just, you know, what if, what if he is healing his whole church? Wouldn't I, if I really believe that the thing I could imagine he is doing with his church or with the whole world is actually happening and that I will get to see it one day, then I can celebrate that right now. And in some ways, the work that happens in my heart when I choose to celebrate it now, as awkward as that may be, helps keep me, helps keep my hope alive for, um, so that I'm actually able to speak in more hopeful ways or able to draw others into that imagination. And so it's, um, for me, it comes from a more creative place or a more dreaming, whimsical artist space, a very emotional space, not a place of anger. Um, if anything, it be can become a place of discouragement or a place of um, depression. And so, um, and that just stops me talking about it or dreaming about it altogether. So I have to be careful not to go there. But I don't, I don't think I personally would tend to be shrill. I would tend to just check out and, and be depressed or discouraged. And I have to guard my heart a lot um, from, from going there. But then that's the lamenting part, you know, that I have to just embrace, okay, this is a part of the process too that I have to cry out to God. And lamenting is just a way to be honest about the brokenness of the world. But when we involve God in it, it's not just complaining. It's actually speaking to the one who we think can make a difference and somehow that, that helps. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, that's Brueggemann. If you're listening to this and you have not read any Walter Brueggemann, uh, prophetic imagination came into my life in 1999 and was just a, gosh, it's such a powerful book. It, mm -hmm. I, I haven't read it in a while. So now you've, you know, you've stoked me to go back and read it again. Mm, it's a classic. So the quote is to cry out for what's broken, but to dance for what is possible. Mm. That's amazing. So you carry that with you. Um, how do you practically give away this wisdom that you've gained from 
you know, what has been a very interesting journey from Australia to Ohio, which is most people's journey, right? Everybody goes from Australia, to Ohio. <laughs> uh, Australia to Ohio, to London, to Ohio, from, you know, staff at a church to co-pastoring, to lead pastoring. How do you, how do you give this away to either, no matter what gender, but leaders within the church and and if there's somebody listening that's in the same, in a similar role as you, how would you guide them to begin to give away some of the wisdom that you've earned? Mm, um, I think my, what I would feel really comfortable doing would be to practice all these ideas and hone them beautifully and shape them until they are shiny and then present them in some kind of fantastic statement. You know, that feels really good to me, but actually, A, I don't have the time to go away and do that constantly, and B, um, it hasn't actually ever been very effective in um, inviting people into the vision. And so for me, what actually has to happen and I've found to be more meaningful to people is to invite people into the process. And so as I'm wrestling with this, as I'm finding answers, as I'm despairing or hoping or rejoicing, um, to actually let people see that. And that's a part of why I wrote a book called The Vulnerable Pastor, because that means the people in my congregation will see me on a day when I am not seeing God's work. Um, you know, I may not bog them down with it if we're supposed to be doing something else, but before we get to do what we're supposed to be doing, I will at least mention we need to, I want to pray about this today before we get on with what we're doing because I, I long to see God at work and I'm not seeing it, you know. Um, and so I think that that's when it really comes alive and when people kind of catch on to it and we give them permission to find those places in themselves when we let people see us behind the scenes a little bit, you know, obviously being thoughtful about what's healthy and unhealthy transparency, but um, that has been... Um, beautiful because not only does it give me permission to be real with people and then I feel like I don't have to carry all these secrets to myself it also helps people other people have permission to be to be real about that stuff so and I would imagine that same that same process that same strategy that same approach applies for you and your role as a mom passing Mm. on that to your daughter and now sending her off knowing she's going to start putting some of that. Isn't that just absolutely petrifying that our kids are actually going to take what we taught them and go be adults with it? (laughs) I'm actually, now that she's almost an adult, like I don't know if 19 is adult or not, but it's pretty close. Um, I'm actually, when I see somebody else living out something I taught them, it actually put, it puts like flesh on the bones. Like it's beautiful and exciting. And maybe because I'm just so proud of her and she's just really flourishing. That helps too. But it's, it, I thought it was going to be terrifying, but it's, it's not when they are stewarding it well, even if they mess up sometimes, you know, because I'm actually, it's funny. It's actually similar to my experience of leading people in the church that sometimes I, I plant a seed of an idea that I don't fully see in its fullness yet, but it seems right and true and good. And I throw it out there. And when I watch how it grows in other people's lives, then I actually can make more sense of it too. And I see, I I often compare pastoral work and I think parenting as well to this, that um, it's like this gardening project where you plant the same seed over and over and over again, but each seed grows into something totally different. It's like this magic seed that, you know, for one person becomes a sunflower, for one person becomes a pine tree. And 
and you're like, okay, this is beautiful, you know? And so, um, I then get to, yeah, then it makes more sense to me when I see another human being embodying these kind of little seeds of whatever it is that I've shared with them. So yeah, I think I see that happening in parenting too. This has been really good. Yeah, it has been. Thank you so we much. We should do this again. Yeah, let's do this again. Thanks for <laughs> being a part of this and for sharing your wisdom and uh, just encouraging us to to do that prophetic work. I'm just really excited about what I know you're up to and what uh, listeners are going to find out. We'll, we'll close the show and I'll give them some ways to get in touch with you. But uh, thanks again for being a part of the conversation. Really. Yeah, it's been a pleasure and a, and a joy. Thanks for having me on. So we lament what is broken <laughs> and we dance, dance for what is possible. Fantastic interview with Mandy Smith. I'm going to have some more information on her in the show notes. Love for you to check that out. And begin, that really helpful thing you could do for the podcast, uh, review, rate us. And by us, I mean, you know, me, because it's, it's just me. Uh, rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast, wherever you get them. Um, and shoot me a, a comment. You can go to my website, caseytigret.com. If you have a comment about the, about the podcast, about a guest you think we should have, about a conversation, something you want to talk about further, I would love to have that conversation with you. And until next time, I pray that you might find a way of wisdom in everything and everyone around you as Jesus guides you and leads you. Peace, friends. Peace.